We are continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah this morning, and we're in chapter 5. Um, just a quick recap to bring us up to speed, in case you missed a message. Uh, Nehemiah has left his position as the cupbearer to the king of Persia to travel 800 miles uh, to rally the Israelites living in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the gates around the city. And you know, as I said last week, without walls and gates, uh, Jerusalem was left unprotected, which meant that people um, felt unsafe to go there to worship, to present their sacrifices. And so in chapter 3, we saw that the Israelites were working side by side, each of them working on their portion of the wall in front of their own houses. And in particular, we talked about the significance of the gates and how there's a parallel there between the gates that surround the city of Jerusalem and the gospel. Last week in chapter 4, we saw that the Israelites had enemies in the surrounding regions who wanted to prevent these walls and these gates from being rebuilt. The people mocked them, discouraged them, and even threatened to attack them. The Israelites responded, of course, by arming themselves while they kept working, right? They had a tool in one hand, a weapon in the other, and they took shifts. Some people would work, some people would protect, some people would sleep. Today we're in chapter 5, and something else happens uh, that prevents, it threatens to prevent the walls and the gates from being rebuilt. The threat that comes in chapter 5 isn't another threat that comes from without. This threat comes from within. The leaders in the city are exploiting the workers for their own profit. Here's what's happening. Some of the workers working on the wall um, had no land, and so they needed to buy their food or they'd have no food, right? Others of the workers were farmers from the nearby villages there, and um, they had volunteered to help rebuild the wall. But as farmers, of course, they depended on their living, like they made their living by farming uh, to feed their families, right? And so to take off a couple months to go work on the wall was a tremendous sacrifice. But of course, we learned in chapter 4, God was moving on their hearts, and it says that they were working with enthusiasm. But this means that the responsibility of their normal work uh, of farming their land had fallen on their wives and on their children. To make matters worse, uh, there was a famine going on, so food was scarce for everyone. And on top of that, the king of Persia heavily taxed the people. Uh, they, They had to pay this tax, right? So between the famine and them being away from the farm, working on the wall, Uh, A lot of them simply didn't have the money to pay the taxes that were being levied, and so these people were desperate. Um, That's where the nobles and the officials and the leaders, uh, the wealthier Israelites step in, right? They offered to lend these poor farmers, uh, these workers, money, uh, the money that they need to get the food and to be able to pay the taxes, But they charged the farmers high interest, right? They demanded that they mortgage the land over to them. 
Um, and the farmers <clears throat> even got to the point where they had to sell their own children as slaves for collateral on these loans. So these wealthier Israelites were exploiting their own countrymen uh, for their own profit, which goes against what God says in Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 and 20. It says this, Do not charge interest on the loans you make to a fellow Israelite, whether you loan money or food or anything else. You may charge interest to foreigners, but you may not charge interest to Israelites, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you do in the land you're about to enter and occupy. So the Israelites were, <clears throat> were used to other nations uh, exploiting them, enslaving them. Well, like This was their own people. This was, this was their own leaders exploiting them. Look at the cry of the people in verse 5 of our scripture today. It says this. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We've already sold some of our daughters, and we're helpless to do anything about it. For our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. So exploiting their own people. Sadly, history is filled with examples of people exploiting uh, other people, even exploiting their own people, right? <clears throat> Stalin in Russia, Mussolini in Italy, Hitler in Germany, uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, Mao Zedong in China, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Pol Pot in Cambodia, and of course, uh, Kim Jong-il and his son, Kim Jong-un, in North Korea. Exploitation, oppression, and injustice. It seems like in every generation there are people uh, who leave a wake of carnage and destruction just for their own self-interest. I want to mention one in detail, um, because I'm half Filipino. Maybe you remember back in the 80s when the president of the Philippines, uh, Ferdinand Marcos, and his wife Imelda, went into exile. Remember this? Raise your hand if you remember this. Okay, good. So they embezzled billions of dollars from their own government and hid it away in accounts like all around the world. Ferdinand Marcos actually holds the Guinness World Record for greatest robbery of a government. Uh, they embezzled somewhere around $10 billion. So the, the Philippine government is still paying interest on Marcos' debt. When they fled the country in 1986, uh, they found asylum first in, in Hawaii. And uh, then when the people went into the palace, uh, what they discovered was this, 15 mink coats, 508 gowns, 888 handbags, and about 3,000 pairs of shoes. You remember this? Mel Mar <laughs> Mel Marcos's shoes 
right? Okay, so the U.S. government uh, documented that the Marcos family entered the United States with millions of dollars in like cash, stocks, jewelry, and gold bars. Um, and on the gold bars was the inscription to my husband on our 24th anniversary. So Amelda Marcos became the poster child for abusive leaders. Um, and those shoes in particular became a symbol of the contrast between the poverty of her country, the Philippines, and the lavish lifestyle she lived at their expense. When you hear stories like this, uh, it makes you wonder, like, how can people live with themselves? Like, how do they sleep at night? How do they, like, do they have a conscience? Do they have a heart? The problem is, biblically, they do have a heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? So that's how they could live with themselves. The human heart, according to the Bible, is the most deceitful of all things, desperately wicked. But this isn't just an issue for like dictators, for corrupt world leaders. Um, the heart that would exploit other people for selfish gain can find, uh, you can find it in the workplace, you can find it in the church, you can find it in your own family, and sometimes we even find it in ourselves. Jesus said this in Luke 16. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. So I think this implies, too, that uh, one who has been sinful in little will most likely be sinful in much if given the opportunity. So take a person who's like rude or mean to a wait waiter or waitress. Um, or that person in the hospital, like the patient, and they're, they're just mean to like the nurses and the CNAs and the doctors. Um, they treat them badly just because they can get away with it, right? Now imagine if that person were to become the ruler of a nation, right? Watch out. Increase in power and authority um, only amplifies that trait. It doesn't diminish it. It increases that person's propensity, right, to exploit, to oppress, to take advantage of. It doesn't decrease it. And we know this, if we know God's word, we know this, God cares deeply about those who are exploited. He cares deeply about those who are oppressed. He cares deeply when there is injustice. Um, he cares about the helpless. He cares about the weak, the defenseless, the poor. Micah 6, 8 um, it's a good memory verse. It has this simple but beautiful verse, and it's this. 
Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So back to Nehemiah. Um, We can learn from Nehemiah's response to this evil of exploitation. Verses 6 and 7 say this. When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. After thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials. I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. So when Nehemiah heard what was going on, he was very angry. It was, it was, it was a righteous anger, right? Anger that comes in the face of like injustice or exploitation or the oppression of people. Popeye anger. Popeye anger. Remember that cartoon character, Popeye? Okay, now I'm just going to test the room. Raise your hand if you know who Popeye is. Okay, good, good, good. All right. So whenever he was facing an injustice or he's being bullied by Bluto or his girlfriend Olive Oil was in danger, this is like totally dating me. Like some of you folks have no clue who Popeye is, right? So anyway, so when he was facing danger of any sort, he would say this. He would say, that's all I can stands, and I can't stands no more, right? And then he would take his, out his can of spinach and he'd squeeze it and it would just go into his mouth and then he would get super strength, right? And he would defeat the enemy. Popeye, anger, okay? So as Nehemiah heard the cries and saw the plight of his own people, um, his people who were being taken advantage of, He got angry. But he was wise enough to temper his anger and not just be impulsive, right? He he thought about what his response should be. And then we see Nehemiah, he calls a public meeting and he charges the leaders with their wrongs, right? Not, it's interesting, not privately, but publicly. He calls a public meeting, okay? And he appeals to their conscience, their conscience in, a way, in a way that just leaves them with nothing to say. It's in verse 8. It says this, At the meeting I said to them, We are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. So he appeals to their national pride uh, by reminding them that while they've been trying to buy back the Israelite slaves from other nations, here they were, like turning around and selling them back into slavery, like this, their own people. Then verse 9 says this, then I pressed further, what you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? Now, Nehemiah appeals to their consciences by telling them that what they are doing is wrong. He also appeals to their faith, right, by reminding them the consequences of not walking in the fear of the Lord. 
And then verse 10 says this. I myself, as well as my brothers and my, and my workers, have been lending the people money and grain, but now let us stop this business of charging interest. Now he appeals to his own personal example that he set before them, right? He and his brothers and his workers have been lending, but not charging any interest. Nehemiah is not a hypocrite, and he's challenging them to follow his example. And then he appeals to them to just do the right thing. Verse 11 says this, you must restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day and repay the interest you charged when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. So what we see here is, is even though Nehemiah has a righteous anger towards these people who are exploiting their own people, there is a redemptive aspect to his anger. He's angry, but he's giving them a way to make it right. He's telling them, do the right thing. Return everything that they'd taken from their countrymen in greed, right? And even repay the interest, right? Make it right. He is publicly standing before his countrymen and saying, make it right. He is exercising courageous leadership. Nehemiah stands in front of the whole city, and he calls them to account for their actions, and then he gives them a way to make it right, right? And then they are convicted by their consciences. We see the reaction in verse 12. It says this, they replied, we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. So they repent of their own exploitation of their own people, right? They make restitution, and they promise never to do it again. Verse 13 then says this, I shook out the folds of my robe and said, if you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and from your property. The whole, the whole assembly responded, amen, and they praised the Lord. And the papal did as they had promised. So, so Nehemiah like proclaimed a curse um, over these people if they broke the promise, right? That God would shake them out of their homes, out of their properties. And like imagine, like leaders are probably pretty shaken up. They're probably humbled but the people love it, right? They're shouting amen, and they're praising the Lord. And the leaders kept their promise. Now, Nehemiah, um, his anger, I'm going to talk about this for a minute, his anger, even though it was a righteous anger, could have led him to overreact. He could have burned bridges uh, by going overboard in how he reacted. Uh, if he had done that, he might have unnecessarily alienated, right, these people by going too far, and it could have turned into a civil war. Um, he had anger. He had well-justified righteous anger, 
But he allowed his anger to fuel him to move towards a redemptive end. Verses 14 and 15 then say this. It says, For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, from the 20th year to the 22nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. The former governors, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine, besides 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, I did not act that way. And so the crisis is over. And now Nehemiah explains even further um, how far he went to not exploit his people in any way. We see here, uh, first off, that Nehemiah is not a hypocrite. Um, he's walking the talk that he previously gave the people who were exploiting his own countrymen. Um, he's reminding them, again, of how far he went to not ever be accused of exploiting his own countrymen. Now, governors at the time um, were allowed, and they were even expected, to add their own tax on the people, right? To provide for their own, their own rations of food and drink. Like, that was expected. Nehemiah doesn't want to add yet another burden to these people's already burdened lives. Verses 16 through 18 say this. I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land. And I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table besides all the visitors from other lands. The provisions I paid for each day included one ox, six choice sheep or goats, and a large number of poultry. And every 10 days, we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine. Yet I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. So we see here that Nehemiah is the kind of leader that we would want to follow. He's a servant leader. He doesn't lord power over the people. Instead, he insists that he and his men also work on the wall. He doesn't give himself special privileges because of his position, even though it was within his right to do so. And then Nehemiah goes even further. You can tell here that Nehemiah had to have been a wealthy man. Um, he was feeding 150 Jewish officials each day. So each day, he was paying for one ox, six choice sheep or goats, and a large number of poultry. And then, I find this interesting, every 10 days, he was paying for a huge supply of all kinds of wine. So he had to be pretty wealthy, which I want to make a point about. The Lord doesn't have anything against wealth, per se. Some people think he does, uh, and they reference the passage 
where Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell all that he had so that he could follow Jesus. Some interpret that text to mean that God doesn't want anyone to have wealth. But the reason for Jesus saying to the rich young ruler to get rid of his riches was because riches were more important to him than Jesus. When Jesus encountered Zacchaeus, the Bible says Zacchaeus was very rich, uh, but Jesus didn't ask him to give up his wealth. So the Lord doesn't have anything against wealth, per se, um, only in not being willing to leverage that wealth for the kingdom. There is no indication here at all that Nehemiah felt the least bit guilty about having the means to bless all these people. There's no indication there of that at all. And yet, there were still poor people in the country. Nehemiah didn't give any indication that he felt badly about being wealthy while others were poor, right? And yet, yet he refused to take more in such a way that would exploit them, that would take advantage of them, or that would make them poorer. Um, so whether we're wealthy or poor, the mindset to have is that everything we have is a blessing from the Lord. We should love God. We should serve him. Um, we should worship God and not money. Okay? And what, what we do have, whether we have much or whether we have little, we should steward well and we should, as much as we can, leverage for the kingdom of God. Nehemiah is a wealthy man, but we also see here that he is a generous man. And unlike some of his countrymen, uh, rather than abusively take advantage of people to make his life richer, he gives to others to make their lives richer. What we see in Nehemiah is the essence, the very essence of servant leadership. Which, of course, points us to Jesus. Jesus, who emptied himself of his place in heaven and his privileges as the Son of God, right? And Jesus became a servant and humbled himself in every way, even to the point of death, a criminal's death, on the cross at Calvary. Why? Why? So that we might receive the riches of eternal life, right? He lowered his status so that he could elevate our status. He paid the price because he knew we couldn't. Jesus sacrificed his very life so that we could have the gift of eternal life through faith in him and through what he did on the cross. Jesus could not be more opposite from the leader who exploits his people. Jesus is a leader, he's a ruler, he's a king who loves his people sacrificially even to the point of death. Now let's look at verse 19. It says, remember, O oh my God, 
all that I have done for these people and bless me for it. So why would, why would Nehemiah ask God to remember him for the good that he had done? So it may not look like it, but we see here the source of Nehemiah's selflessness. Selflessness. Nehemiah wanted to serve God, and he wanted to serve God's people because he believed that living by faith in what we couldn't see, what we cannot see, would be more rewarding, more satisfying than for what he could see in his life. Living by faith in what we cannot see is more rewarding, more fulfilling than living for what we can see in this life, which is operating with a kingdom mindset. How can we leverage that which will perish for that which is imperishable? How can we leverage, how can we take what is temporal, what is finite, what is limited, and leverage that for something that is eternal? Remember I talked about all of Imelda Marcos's uh, mink coats and gowns and handbags, and in particular, her shoes. Um, back in the 80s, uh, they would show pictures of all her shoes. And, and like I said, these shoes kind of became the symbol of the lavish lifestyle lived at the expense of her own people. But, but now, those shoes are a different, a very, very different symbol. They're going to show you a picture of some of her shoes and handbags now. Rotting. Rotting. That's what Jesus said would happen to all of our earthly treasures. Moth and rust would corrupt. Thieves would steal. Including the thief of time. When people abuse other eternal souls in order to collect fading junk like shoes or money or power or position, they're making a bad exchange. They're trading jewels for junk, treasure for trinkets. They're trashing the precious and they're holding as precious trash. And one day, this short life will come to an end. Uh, the worst tyrants come to a day when they, when they breathe their last, when they're hold on power and material goods uh, is loosed forever. And everything they got by evil measures decays, is corrupt, is gone. And so will it be with us too. If any of us here have a heart posture to exploit, to take advantage of, to lie, 
to manipulate for our own gain, then we need to repent. Any situation where people are involved, we should ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and reveal to us, is there any way that I am exploiting weaknesses or I am taking advantage of other people for my own gain? This is a very good question to ask ourselves. And if the, if the Spirit reveals some area, then we need to repent. Um, we also need, in the spirit of this talk, we need to also look out for others who are exploited and care for them enough to get angry and to get involved and to do something about it. If someone you know at work or school uh, is getting bullied, you need to stand up for them. If someone is being oppressed by some authority in their life, pray for them, and if there's an opportunity, help them. The repentance and the restoration that the Israelites experience all begins because the people cry out, and one man, the cupbearer to the king, hears them. Who is he? No one special. Just a man who listened to the Lord and stepped in with faith to do something. The people cry out, and Nehemiah hears them, and he does something about it. It is important to keep our eyes and to keep our ears open. Is there anyone in your world, anyone, um, who's being taken advantage of? Anyone who's being oppressed? Anyone who's being exploited? Is it in your power to do something about it? Are you having a Popeye moment? That's all I can stand, and I can't stand no more. And you got to do something about it. Like, that's a gift from God. He has put that in your soul. I think most of us are familiar with fasting. It's giving up something, usually food, but it can be other things. Um, but we do it so that we can focus more on prayer and seeking the Lord. Fasting is all throughout the Bible. But in Isaiah 58, chapter 58, the Lord describes what he calls true fasting. And I want to close with this scripture so we can meditate on this this week. I encourage you to read it, to reread it, and ask the Lord if there's anything that he wants you to do about it. And it's Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 through 9. It says this. No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. 
and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then, when you call, the Lord will answer, yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that for those of us who put our faith and trust in you, in your death and resurrection, for those of us who have made you Lord of our lives, you have freed us. You have broken the bondages of sin and death. You have given us hope. You've given us a new identity. You've given us a new family. And truly, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news this world needs to hear. For without you, there is no hope. Holy Spirit, I pray you would bring awareness, you would bring conviction to any area in our lives where we are the ones who are bringing oppression or injustice or taking advantage of people. Lord, help us to repent and help us to follow Nehemiah's example, your example, and be servants, be generous, be kingdom-minded, that we would make an impact for your kingdom, God, that outlives us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.